Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is Friday, July the 24th, 2020, and this is episode 2695 of the Survival Podcast. And that, that's not right at all. That's, I don't know what the date or the show number is, but I know that's wrong. Okay, I paused and fixed that. It's 2,696. I, I knew that we had already done 2,695 this week. Wasn't sure if it was yesterday, and it was. So it's 2,696. It is Friday, Friday, Friday. I've got a relatively short show compared to normal for you, especially when it comes to expert counsel shows. I'm going to put two segments in from me, and I'm going to have to get back with some of the counsel. I would love to tell you it's the piking tree's fault that too many council members piked on me this week, and, and some did. But I know, and I don't know where the hell they went, that I have a couple expert counsel segments that were sent to me that I cannot find. And I have dug through every folder, used every keyword search. I don't know what happened. I don't know where they've gone. But I do have some good stuff for you. Well, kind of good stuff, some creepy stuff. You know, just when you thought 2020 had nothing more to worry about. I mean, you went through COVID, and we're still doing that, and murder hornets, and Giant human-sized bats? You, di you didn't hear about the giant human-sized bats? No? No? Google that shit. That's a thing. Uh, we had, uh, like, uh, ravenous, uh, disease-infected rats in New York. Like, yeah, we are got to have the 2020 apocalypse. Got to be taking the cake. Florida man did everything that there was to do in Florida. Um, how about bed bugs? Bedbugs are making a comeback. Doc Bones will talk to us about that, how to deal with them if you end up with that problem and more. How about the difference between a custom knife, what Patrick Roman calls a hybrid knife, and I would maybe I would maybe call that a semi-custom would be a word that I would prefer for it, and a production knife. That's from Patrick Roman. We have some follow-up on ATVs, UTVs, and mini trucks from Derek Bonpietro. And I have an interesting bit of feedback on more evidence of the homeschool tsunami wave. I told you about some stuff this week, like the North Carolina website for registering your homeschool students crashing. Uh, I've got just a comment from a listener, and I'll tell you a few other comments that make you realize that when I say this shit's happening, I'm not kidding. I'm not pulling this out of my ass. This is not kind of a sort of. This is a homeschool revolution tsunami and it's going to have massive economic impacts and I'll use that to introduce to you my latest in a series of articles on the coming crash the coming economic crash that we are going to deal with it's just uh, again it's how bad will it be uh, and today we will talk about post secondary education so I've already released the article on primary and secondary which is K12 I've already released an article on the real estate and the migration patterns that go along with that And then now I'm releasing the one on, on basically college education. And I'll talk a little bit about how the college crash, the, the decline in collegiate, has, is going is gonna to be severely aggravated in the coming years by the revolution in homeschooling. This is a connection I think a lot of people will fail to make because we do make a big deal out of the fact that if a homeschooler wants to go to college, it's not a problem. And they do better in college. 
They have a graduation rate. So it's not just getting in. It's completion. Their completion rate for homeschoolers that start college is 67%. And the completion rate for students out of the state school system that start college that actually completed is 54%. It's not insignificant, the difference there. And it is definitely in favor of the homeschooler. But I'm going to tell you why more homeschoolers equal less collegiate enrollment. And I'm going to give you a few thoughts here at the end to kind of make up for my shortage in expert counsel content um, on getting ready for the fall gardening season. It, it, it's coming so much faster than you think, and our item of the day will fit right into that as well. And then I got a great song to end the week on. Just an uplifting, happy song. We got so much crap going on in the world today. I just thought you guys would appreciate that. Uh, before we get into it, let me remind you, hey, you want to support this show? Do you like the work that we do? Do you want us to always be here? Become a member. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members to learn more. That's all you have to do. You fill out a simple form. It's 50 bucks a year. You use the discount. You get your money back. You get a bunch of other cool stuff as well. So that works out, if you do the math, about 18 cents an episode. So if you think the show's worth 20 cents an episode, you can join the MSB just because of that, but then get your money back. It's really kind of cool. Anyway, with that, let's talk about our quote of the day today. Um, I am all on, all in on kicking the school right now, and I have a really, really happy announcement. Um, as of yesterday, my son and my daughter-in-law are all in on homeschool for our kids. We thought they would be for our grandkids. We were like, but I just, you know, I, any situation like that, I'm not. I don't have the legal right or authority to withdraw them from the. Uh, the, the public school system in Texas. They do. So we uh, all agreed last night, not only that, but we are also going forward with the Excellus uh, Academy um, curriculum. And I, I'm going to actually be reaching out to Excellus about possibly providing a subject matter expert for an interview on the show. I, I am very impressed, obviously, um, uh, with unlimited options of where I could choose to recommend that my grandchildren attend school the fact that I chose them tells you that not only am I impressed like on paper, I'm impressed in reality or I wouldn't be doing this. And so I just kind of want to tell you that before I give you our quote of the day. And if you think the incompetence of schools is anything new, this quote is from Mark Twain. Man's been gone a while. Okay, <laughs> He said one time uh, in reference to the school boards, in the first place, God made idiots. That was for practice. Then he made school boards. So, Mr. Twain believed, also known as Sam Clemens, his real name, that school boards were so incompetent that for God to put the idea in our little heads and be okay with him, you know, as sovereign over all things, with school boards being what they are, to get practice for eventually helping school boards come into existence, that the Almighty first created idiots. You know, kind of like practice with your clay dough before you use the real clay in, 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 in making a sculpture. That's That was Mr. Twain's opinion of school boards way, 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 way long ago. And schools, by the way, were probably a lot better uh, than they are today. So I'll just leave that for what it is as we get into today's show. And let's start off with a creepy crawly thing. Called a bed bug. What are they? How do you know if you got them? What do you do if you get them? How do you get rid of them? All that stuff. Doc Bones, take it away. Hi, Joe Altman D here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net and also the best-selling books, The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. 
Of all the creepy crawlies that can cause trouble in a household, few are worse than bed bugs. Although poor standards of living and unsanitary conditions have been associated with bed bug infestations, even the cleanest home in the most developed country can harbor these parasites. They were once so common that every house in many urban areas was thought to harbor them in the early 20th century. Now, they declined with the advent of modern pesticides like DDT, but since that was banned decades ago, a resurgence of these critters has been noted in North America, Europe, and even Australia. Cities such as New York and London have seen five times more cases than usual reported over the last few years. Now, this may have to do with general overuse of pesticides and Maybe that has led to resistance. It's not really certain. Although the Environmental Protection Agency considers bedbugs a true public health hazard, you'll be glad to know that they don't transmit diseases, like, for example, mosquitoes do with malaria. This is in contrast to body lice and fleas, which has been associated with outbreaks of typhus, relapsing fever, even the plague. They do, however, cause issues with allergic reactions, which can be severe and even lead to anaphylactic shock in rare cases. Skin infections can occur if there's excessive scratching in the area, especially if good hygiene isn't practiced. In addition, there's a mental cost to having bed bugs. If you know you have bed bugs, it may cause anxiety and issues with insomnia, leading to a decline in overall health. The common bed bug is called Cymex lectularius and hits a small wingless insect that's thought to have originated in caves where both bats and humans made their homes. Ancient Greeks such as Aristotle actually mentioned them in their writings. They were such a serious issue during World War II that Zyklon, a hydrogen cyanide gas infamously used in Nazi concentration camps, was implemented to get rid of infestations. There are a number of species which are found in different climates. Unlike lice, bedbugs are not always picky about the species they bite. For example, Cymex hemipterus, a bedbug that's found in tropical regions, infects poultry and bats as well as humans. Adult bedbugs are light to medium brown. They're oval. They have flat bodies about 4 millimeters long, a little bit more after they have eaten you. Juveniles are called nymphs, and they're lighter in color, almost translucent. There are several nymph stages before you get to adulthood, and to progress to adulthood, you gotta have a meal of blood. So how did your home get bed bugs? Wow, that's the question, isn't it? Bed bugs arrive in various ways, such as being brought in from other infested buildings on a visitor's clothing or luggage. Maybe infested items such as furniture is brought into a home. Maybe ductwork, other passageways are the entrance way for the bed bugs. Or they could be transferred from bus or airline seating. Didn't think about that one, did you? I didn't. You might have a tendency to blame Fido for the problem, but as bed bugs don't live on animals, pets are really not considered to spread infestations. Your pet is just as likely as you, however, to get bitten. Strangely, bed bugs don't like to live in your clothes, like body lice, or on your skin or hair, like fleas. They apparently don't care much for heat, and they prefer to spend more time in your backpack or luggage than your underarm. That means you have to do a thorough search to find their nests. To achieve this goal, a magnifying glass is probably going to help. Look at every seam in your mattress, your linens, backpacks, furniture. Bed bugs will also hide in joints in the wooden parts of headboards and baseboards. You'll usually find bed bug families of various ages along with some brown fecal markings and perhaps even small amounts of dried blood in one area. Bed bugs are mostly but not exclusively active at night when they bite the exposed skin of sleeping humans to feed on their blood and then retreat to hiding places in the seams, as I said before, of mattresses, linens, and furniture. 
Bites are usually painless, but later on, itchy, raised welts on the skin may develop. The severity of response, well, that varies from person to person. Many confuse the bites of bedbugs with mosquitoes or fleas. Most flea bites will appear around the ankles, while bedbugs will bite pretty much any area of skin exposed to them during the night. Bedbug bites may represent mosquito bites at first glance, but they tend to bite multiple times in a straight line. That's called the breakfast, lunch, and dinner pattern. They also have a characteristic central red spot where the bite occurred. Many times they're confused with rashes like eczema or fungal infections, and some people actually don't seem to have a reaction to their bite at all. As bedbugs don't transmit disease, as far as we know, the main strategy should be directed to alleviating the symptoms. The most common treatment is hydrocortisone cream to treat rashes and inflammation, plus the use of diphenhydramine, Benadryl, for allergic symptoms and itching. The cure, however, is to eradicate the bed bug from your retreat. That's much harder to do. Once bed bugs are identified, most will immediately want to treat with chemicals. Pesticides in the pyrethroid family and malathion have been thought to be effective in killing them. Propoxor, an insecticide, is highly toxic to bed bugs as well, but it's not yet approved for indoor use in the U.S. due to health risks. If you use chemicals, be sure you cover all areas of the bed, including the frame and slats. Expect several treatments to be required to eliminate the infestation. Repeat at least once, 10 days after the initial treatment. You might quite understandably be concerned about the effect of pesticides in your home. Some suggest using natural predators, but I find this highly impractical. The bed bug predator list includes ants, spiders, roaches, and mites. You don't want any of these as house guests. One reasonable option for mattresses that avoids the use of chemicals is the use of bedding covers, a strategy known as encasing. Special sheets or padding are used to cover your mattress. This traps bed bugs inside until they starve. If a bed bug can't reach you to get a meal of blood, it will eventually die. If you're home, make sure to place all bedding and clothes in a hot dryer for, say, an hour. Usually, washing alone will not kill bed bugs, although hot soapy water over maybe 125 degrees Fahrenheit might work. This strategy, by the way, includes your backpack when you return from a trip. Extreme cold is also considered an effective treatment. If you live far enough north, four or five days of bedding exposure to temperatures approaching zero degrees Fahrenheit should kill them. It should kill you, too. (laughs) If you have access to a working vacuum, use it on flooring and upholstery. A stiff brush is also helpful to scrub mattress seams before you vacuum. In the past, everything from black pepper to turpentine has been used as a natural remedy to eradicate bed bug infestations. Natural remedies to use today include dusting scenes with diatomaceous earth as the insects travel over a generous powdering, tearing up their abdomen, and over two weeks or so they die. The reason why it takes so long is probably that diatomaceous earth doesn't kill the eggs. It should be noted that only food-grade diatomaceous earth should be used for this purpose and that people with lung issues like COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, really should consider other types of treatment. Many people swear by tea tree oil and rubbing alcohol as well. Here's another time-honored herbal bedbug treatment that's essentially a cocktail of different essential oils. You take one cup of water, lavender essential oil, 10 drops, rosemary essential oil, 10 drops, eucalyptus essential oil, 10 drops, and maybe even some clove oil, and put that in a fine mist spray bottle, shake well before using, and give everything a good generous spraying. As bedbugs can live for months without a meal, it's important to maintain long-term diligence in identifying these pests wherever you hang your hat. These bugs may not end your life, but they can certainly make it miserable. 
This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, check out a copy of our latest book, Alden's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, now available at Amazon or get a signed color copy at store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and personal protection items at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. I had a friend who, at various times, and, and this was during like the heyday of, I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, there was a guy that had a show, uh, I, I want to say Martin Lawrence, but I don't think it was Martin Lawrence. And he had a thing on it that was like, things that make you go, hmm. And uh, my buddy Brian used to say, things that make you go, bleh. And uh, at various times for various reasons, and I, I, I think that bed bugs uh, qualify for things that make you go. Bleh. And again, check out the six foot bats. I'm not kidding. And it's a six foot wingspan to make it a six foot and six foot bats, and bed bugs, um, infected rats, murder hornets. 2020, things that make you go, Anyway, um, let's talk about something a little better, something a little bit more constructive, something that actually can be used to construct things. Uh, Cordless power tool sets. Uh, Tim, the tool man, Cook here with some information on choosing kind of the best brands. And I got some follow-up on this one where I'm actually going to bring up a brand I don't own, but I'll tell you why I highly recommend it as well. Hey guys, Tim the Toolman Cook back here from All Seasons Maintenance in East Central Alberta, Canada. Back this week to answer another expert counsel question. This week's question comes from James Bailey, and he asks, what brand of power tools would you recommend somebody move into if they're in a position to start over? Details, I'm a part-time and hopefully soon-to-be full-time livestock farmer, so I use my power tools more than a weekend warrior, but less than some professionals might. Right now, I currently have a Hitachi drill, but one of my two batteries have quit working. I have plug-in circular saw, sawzall, angle grinder, but I don't have an impact driver. I would like to have all of those tools in a cordless variety because I don't always have power on parts of my farm. I'm leading towards DeWalt, but want your input. Please let me know if you have any follow-up questions. So thanks for this question, James. This should only take a couple of seconds with a very simple two-word answer. All you need to know is uh, DeWalt. I'm just kidding. The two-word answer is, of course, it depends. If anyone's listened to me for very long, you know my preference is for DeWalt. But I'm going to throw out my personal bias, and I'm going to treat this like I'm new to cordless tools, and I'm researching for the first time. So I'm going to throw a lot of information at you in the next five minutes, so hang in there. So first off, which brands are even in the running as the best overall system in the market? You have Bosch, DeWalt, Hitachi, Milwaukee, Makita, Ryobi, and Rigid. Those are the main ones that someone may consider. And I think you have a few main considerations on what makes them the best or one of the best systems. So if you're looking for an entire system, things I think you need to look at and worry about are selection, quality, price, availability, and warranty. So first, we can probably eliminate Ryobi. It's great in price, but their quality lends itself more to the DIY crowd. Rigid has a class-leading warranty, a really good selection, but they suffer on availability, as they're only available at Home Depot. Bosch and Hitachi both have really good quality basic drills and saws, but they don't have an overall selection that warrants investing in an entire system, especially if you want to venture into lawn and garden type tools, which sounds like you might be considering. So that really leaves us the three big ones, Makita, Milwaukee, and DeWalt. 
Makita has a very large, actually the largest selection of 18-volt tools with over 250. However, they drop off the list based on two qualifications, I would say. First, they have the weakest warranty. It's still a three-year warranty, but they don't offer the 90-day exchange or one-year service that DeWald offers. And secondly, they don't offer a significant higher voltage lineup. They have some 36-volt lineup tools, but all that is is really just two 18-volt batteries side-by-side. Before we even started, most people probably would have guessed it was down to DeWalt in Milwaukee. Uh, Pepsi and Coke kind of choice. Honestly, at this point, you could choose either and be happy, but you asked me which system would be best. So let's try to break it down just a little more for you. First, don't let the 20-volt label on DeWalt fool you. It's just a branding concept. Their nominal voltage is still 18 volt, which is identical to Milwaukee. So that 20 volt doesn't mean it's more power or anything. That's just their branding. The Milwaukee M18 platform batteries are 100% compatible with all of their M18 tools. Where the new higher voltage 60 volt DeWalt stuff does have some backwards compatibility issues. So, you know, if you're looking for 100% compatibility, Milwaukee's probably the way to go. But DeWalt offers some higher voltage. Uh, they have 60 volt and some 120 volt cordless options. So if you're ever looking for a full on professional quality tools, such as a 12 inch chop saw and a fully powered 120 volt battery table saw, these are both as good as electric, then you probably should go with DeWalt. Uh, as far as selection, Milwaukee offers 150 plus tools. DeWalt offers just over 200 tools. So if you're looking for a very specific tool, DeWalt has a slightly better chance of having it. Availability is a dead tie. They're both available at all the big box home improvement retailers, and more importantly, Amazon as well, because they have some great deals on there at times. If you're looking at warranty, Milwaukee wins. They offer an identical warranty to DeWalt, except that it's five years instead of three, and that can be a big deal. As far as their quality goes, again, I'd say it's a tie. I used the M12 Milwaukee platform for nearly a decade, and the drill I used was bulletproof. And the DeWalt stuff I'm using now feels just as rugged. So as far as durability, it's a dead heat. As far as pricing goes, DeWalt offers a kit that comes with a drill, impact driver, resip saw, grinder, and circular saw for $5.91 on Amazon. They also throw in a Bluetooth speaker, which is great, but whatever. It comes with two one and a half amp hour batteries, which are fine for the drill and the impact driver, but honestly wouldn't be real good on those other tools. Milwaukee offers the same set without the speaker for $614 on Amazon as well, but it comes with a two amp hour and a four amp hour battery, which is a much better offering because that four amp hour battery is going to be good enough to use on the saws and the grinder out of the box. So if you're looking for an upgrade, on the DeWalt batteries, they also offer a two-pack of six-amp-hour batteries for $149.99 on Amazon as well. I've bought two of those two-packs so far, and I love them. To buy two Milwaukee six-amp-hour batteries is $185, so about $35 more. So honestly, it's a flip of a coin. My personal preference is DeWalt, but if you're concerned mostly about the warranty, I say go with Milwaukee. If tool selection and some higher-powered tools are your concern, go with DeWalt. You're going to spend just a little extra money. If, if you want an all-in-one kit that is good to go with the batteries, you need to spend an extra 25 bucks and get the Milwaukee. But if you're feeling all-in on the DeWalt, go with the kit and add the two-pack of six-amp-hour batteries. 
So for what it's worth, guys, that was the longest one word non-answer I've ever given. But which, whichever one you choose, please let me know what you went with and why you chose which brand over which one. So anyway, guys, thanks. This has been Tim Cook from All Seasons Maintenance. Uh, if you get a minute, go by and check out our YouTube channel. We have some really cool tool time tool reviews this week. I uh, just did the Karcher surface cleaner for a pressure washer. And we have a an awesome Amazon security system review coming up later on next week. So guys, stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So I, I think anybody that's listened to the show for any length of time, one time or another has heard enough for me to know that I am a huge fan of DeWalt. DeWalt is my power tool of choice, and Tim came down on DeWalt as being his leading recommendation, and so I would tend to agree. However, I feel like one tool line got over overlooked or just kind of passed by a little too swiftly there, even though I don't own it and I'm not buying it. But I have to say that if I was investing in power tools from day one today and I didn't have any installed base already here, it would be very hard for me to look past rigid, which is priced fairly comparably with DeWalt, in some ways actually a little more expensive But I believe that the cost of ownership of Rigid Tools long-term is lower than DeWalt, and I cannot advise against purchase of Rigid over DeWalt if you don't own either one. With one exception, as of right now, as far as I know, Rigid doesn't have like you know a chainsaw that you can drop their battery into. They don't have a weed eater you can drop their battery into and what have you. So if you, especially if you're going to use like for light duty, lawn, garden, homestead work. Like Because I have a really great cordless chainsaw uh, made by a company called Oregon. And if DeWalt had a saw at the time I bought the Oregon one, I probably would have bought the DeWalt saw and dropped the DeWalt batteries that I already have into it, right? And But they're really, that's not, even when I recommend that saw, it's not for going out and felling trees every day. It's for the average homeowner Owns, you know, a couple acres to a half acre to a quarter acre. Occasionally needs to prune a tree or cut a tree down or deal with some shit that, you know, just a reciprocating saw really is not ideal for and they need a little bit more power. Or if you have a, a typical, you know, backyard, a good cordless weed eater, just go around your fences and your outer edges, you know, one or two batteries uh, of power and you're done for the day and no cord or whatever. They're really nice. So if you kind of want an all-in-one solution, DeWalt continues to evolve that product offering, and it's about top of the market for that type of product offering. One thing with a chainsaw, though, is they don't have a self-sharpening blade like the Oregon. So there's that. If you want a power tool set for power tools and you're concerned about the long-term oper operating a cost, Tim went over a, lead, a industry-leading warranty was the words he used, and that's true. But honestly, warranty on the tools is pretty similar on all the top manufacturers. Where Rigid stands above everyone, they warranty their batteries. They warranty their batteries. And that was the sales pitch that I got from my buddy David, whose opinion on tools I trust a lot. Uh, he ran a company with a hell of a lot of contractors in it, doing a hell of a lot of work, that he had to fund a lot of jobs, buy a lot of equipment. And he said, when it came down to it, if you had a Rigid tool next to a DeWalt tool, You might as well flip a coin on quality of the tool. But when it came to the cost of operations due to battery failures and having to replace them, he came down on rigid. As for, they only come from Home Depot. If you see yourself routinely having to run out and buy new tools, 
right away, today, now, I guess that kind of matters. Given the batteries are warrantied and most of us buy extra batteries, I don't know that it does. And you can get them other places than Home Depot. Now, I don't know if that's a Canadian thing, and I have to say I've never seen rigid in a Lowe's in Texas. So if you come to the big box stores, maybe, but you could certainly order rigid tools on Amazon. So I almost feel like I'm betraying DeWalt by making this recommendation, but I would behoove you to consider, and I've added that to the links that Tim gave me that are in today's show notes, where you can see uh, a couple different uh, tool sets by Rigid, and I do believe that they are top quality and the batteries are warrantied. And you will find that you will forget how much money you spent on a good set of cordless tools pretty quickly. But you won't forget how expensive batteries are every time you have to add one or replace one. Just saying. Uh, with that, let's hear a little bit from uh, Derek Pompietro on ATVs, UTVs, mini trucks, all kinds of cool stuff. Hey, TSP listeners. This is Derek from AffordableDCGenerators.com. I've got a follow-up question about a uh, ATV and UTV, so let's dig into it. Hey, Jack, on April 24th, 2020, Derek answered a question about moving from an ATV to a UTV and suggested I look at a Suzuki Samurai, and I wanted to follow up. Do you have an opinion on a mini truck versus a Samurai? Details. As I've researched a Samurai versus a UTV, that led to the Jimny, which is a Japanese model of the Suzuki Samurai, and then I ran across a mini truck. I am now more interested in an alternative like the UTV. They are similar costs and in my area seem easier to obtain. My son works at a high school camp and has used these vehicles successfully. What are the disadvantages of a mini truck over a Samurai? Our homestead is 13 acres in North Georgia with hilly terrain. Well, Grodden, I don't think you can go wrong either way. They're both really great vehicles. But let's back up a minute so address the difference between these two. Obviously, an ATV is going to be usually a single passenger rider, or some of them now are, are two in line. Um, traditional ATV, so you're going to sit on a seat and you got a set of handlebars. The UTV is going to be a sit-down model, typically a two or four arrangement, so two side-by-side -side and then two in the back if it's a bigger model. The advantages of the UTV is that they're easy to uh, have worked on, so you're going to buy one like a Kawasaki or a Honda or, or you know something like that, and you're going to take it to a dealer, a dealer that does you know watercraft and ATVs or motorcycles. And so these are very common things. You can get parts for them and you can get them worked on, but they're super expensive. They're really great for kind of an out-of-the-box utility vehicle or for maybe going really fast over things or fitting down a what's classified as a, an ATV trail, some models. Most of them are too wide, but they do make them where they can get on a classified ATV trail. I think that's where it kind of ends because $15,000, $20,000 gets into something that really serves a low number of purposes. So I really like the mini trucks and the Samurais. The Samurai is a full-framed vehicle, meaning it has a separate chassis than a body. Uh, they make them in a short wheelbase, long wheelbase, soft top, hard top, and you can even find a high top model, which would probably fit the average man from the United States. Most of them are pretty small. You're going to get some with power steering overseas. You can get air conditioning as an option. They have gas engines from turbo three cylinders to naturally aspirated four cylinders they're all fairly slow as far as getting on the highway but they're pretty rugged if you look underneath one it's got leaf springs solid axles a real two-speed transfer case uh, you can get tons of, of accessory parts like lockers and suspension and all kinds of stuff and gears but they're only so big so obviously that's kind of where the size ends if, if you fit in it great if you don't not going to work um, you know it's not going to be tooling down the highway at 80 miles an hour 
Most of these are rotted out, so in the United States, you're going to be very limited unless they're down south. I believe in the Australian market, they made a tray back or referred to as a ute, which is just like a cab and a flatbed. Uh, so these are these are a great platform. I love them. I've owned so many Samurais. I've built so many different types. Uh, I absolutely love them. They have their, their time and place. Um, wouldn't probably spend a lot of really long distance road time with one, but for local stuff, fantastic option. Now, what's a mini truck? I think you're referring to not like a uh, import truck from like the 80s and 90s, but a key truck, which is K-E-I. And this is a certain classified size vehicle from Japan. So in Japan, they said it can't be dimensionally bigger than this. It has to have uh, a certain sized engine, which I think is the 660cc size. So nothing bigger than that, which is obviously like power regulations and emissions over there. So they created this key classification, and then all these manufacturers built vans, pickup trucks, uh, you know, like a flatbed model. You got a lot of options from all the name brands, you know, like the Hondas and Suzuki's. Uh, and then they have tons of options, you know, whether it's naturally aspirated turbo, manual transmission, power steering. You can even get them with air conditioning. The pickup trucks have like a very utilitary flatbed with fold down sides. I mean, let's face it, if you're going to a third world country uh, and, and you're looking at, you know, the agricultural use or just, you know, shipping materials and goods through the city, that's that's where these guys shine. So, again, you're not getting out on the highway and doing 80 miles an hour with it, but you can do 55, you can get awesome fuel economy, and these are just as easy to work on and have the reliability that the Samurai has. So remember, it's Japanese, everything's really built well, you can get parts for them. Uh, I'd say the Samurai is probably a little bit easier to work on, because in the key truck, the engine is usually like kind of behind the driver and passenger, so you have to lift the bed up to get to it. And these are usually a unibody, meaning the body and the frame is all one. So I'd say as far as like off-road capability and ruggedness the samurai beats it hands down but it's still capable of going off-road uh, you've got like a locking differential option in the back so they're really capable vehicles just note that the samurai is a little bit bigger in every regard and it's a little more rugged if all you're doing is tooling around in the grass or maybe you know up some hills and you want to carry a payload fantastic if you want to get into a little bit more gnarlier off-road use uh, you're going to get a lot more uh, you know, aftermarket support with the Samurai, you know, you can get bigger tires on it, lower gears and all that, where the key truck usually gets pretty limited if you want to go that route with upgrades. Uh, you can, but, you know, you're not going to get much bigger than, like, an ATV tire on it or something like that, where a Samurai, you know, you can usually fit, like, a 31 or 32-inch tire on it with some modifications, no problem. So I don't think there's really any limitations or deciding factor on my end as far as which way you go and i'd never think i'd really say this but because they're both kind of micro sized but the samurai is definitely a little bit roomier and, and easier to drive and, and all of that just on the space but you know you can still fit in one of the key trucks as long as you're not like over six feet tall and they're just as good they're just a little bit smaller a little less power but honestly like price wise if you want to find one that's like really mint condition and you don't mind a manual transmission or right-hand drive, your best bet's to get one from like Japan. Just have it imported. I think price point-wise, you're probably fairly close. The key truck may be a little bit cheaper than the Samurai, but not by much because realistically, you know, you're going to be looking at a few thousand dollars just to get it into the country. So, you know, you're going to ship it to like East Coast, West Coast, Texas, somewhere, wherever you're located, uh, and you're going to pay like an import tax and some shipping fees and all kinds of crazy stuff like that. But, you know, the price of the vehicle, you might only pay two, three grand for the truck, and then, you know, you got a few grand to get it into the country where you're at. And if you've got a dealer, some guys deal these things, the key trucks locally, 
you know, you might not have to do all of that yourself. You might be able to just pay somebody to do it all for you. And, and you know, there's going to be a few extra dollars in there to, to have a, a turnkey process, you know, with a local guy. So I think if you're happy with the UTV side-by-side size, you know, that's the kind of size vehicle you're looking for. I think the key truck is probably where you're at because it's going to be similar size, similar sized tires, and, you know, not fifteen dollars to $20,000, maybe more like five dollars to $8,000. I think if you want something that has a little bit more capability in the off-road department, I'd probably go with the Jimny. Well, Grodden, I hope that answers your question, and I am really envious regardless of which one you go with. I think they're awesome little toys to have and not a whole lot of money out of your pocket for that kind of fun. Check out the affordable DC generators page for an affordable DC power supply solution. If you got a battery bank, you're looking to run an RV, a boat, or a truck, or anything like that that has batteries with an inverter, affordable DC generator is the easiest, cheapest way to go. Take care, guys. So I got kind of two things I want to wrap up with. I want to I want to talk a little bit more about this homeschool thing that's that's going to hit and and, and drive home a little bit about how big economically this is. And and this is one of those things that you won't you, you won't really understand it till you see it and you can't see it yet because even though it happened it didn't happen. And I know that sounds weird, but here's what I mean by that. So in March and early April this year, a hundred percent of people in the United States, I guess there's a few places where it didn't happen, but almost everybody, ninety eight percent of parents found themselves homeschooling. And But most of them weren't. They were virtual schooling, meaning that the teachers were still involved from the schools. And the expectation was, well, the children will go back to school. Yeah, at first, they were like, maybe this will be like a month, right? And then the children will go back to school right, and finish up. And then it realized that that really didn't make any sense. So almost all the schools said, we're not opening up. We're going to do this through summer. We've got this running now. And then, well, the expectation was, well, the kids will go back to school in August or September, depending on what part of the country you're in. Because in some parts of the country, kids go to school till June and go back in September. And in some parts, they go to May and go back in August, which I, I've always found to be retarded. I really have. Um, I, I grew up in the northeastern United States and in high school, and I went to school in Florida uh, in, in grade school. And we always went back to school the day after Labor Day Memorial Day, whichever one it is in September, right? So the day after the day after the first day of dove season when I was in high school. That's how I kind of remember things from the high school era. And it made a lot of sense to me because August is just like the worst month for heat anywhere. Like, yeah, I mean, sure, it's not as hot in Pennsylvania as it is in Texas, but August in Texas sucks. I mean, September's not great, but August sucks, and th- so the kids go back to school in August, and, and that's so that they can stop school in May. I, I, I think, so just this is an aside, right? You know, like it makes a lot more sense to go to school into June because June sucks, but August really sucks everything that sucks about sucking, okay? So I just an aside from that. But one way or another, the kids would go back in the fall. Now most school districts are saying, no, we're not doing it. One way or another, they're not doing it for various reasons, none of which make a lot of sense, but it's the case. That's extended this thing. But the expectation is still, well, it'll be for eight weeks. So that means what? You're going to keep them home until the election? That's kind of convenient, but let's just ignore that. That eight weeks will pull up when? Right about a little bit before the election. Maybe we can do a little extension there. But so you're going to send them back when? At the peak of cold and flu season? Okay, Wait a minute, huh? Like, see, and then 
the ones that are talking about having your kids come back or saying that they're going to come back are having these really Orwellian, like even leftists are looking at this going, holy shit, no. Right? Like, I saw one where they're like bolting plexiglass confinement things around every desk. So your kid sits in this little, like, prison bubble all day long if it wasn't bad enough already. And some of these other plans and things that they show being done. And New Jersey put out an article that said, Parents, you need to mask train your children before you send them back to school. Here's how to do it. And then basically give blueprints for not just physically how to wear a mask, but how to brainwash your child into obeying this commandment. And so more and more people are like, no. No. And there's, you can even bifurcate that into two groups. You can have the one group of people going, this is stupid and you're not doing it to my child. And, it, and, it, and it's totally unnecessary. And you can... The other group is people that are even like, well, I'm really afraid and I believe all this stuff needs to be done, but I'm not putting my kid through it. So now add to that this little comment that came up on on the blog today where I published yesterday's podcast, and it was a comment in reference to yesterday's podcast. Here's what he said. My dad lives beside two teachers in rural Kentucky. They told him the surveys indicate that 30% of parents plan to keep their kids home this fall. Wow. 30%. Rural Kentucky. Where the schools are probably less idiotic than they are in a lot of other places. I've had numerous comments like this on on the blog, social media, etc. Uh, one person told me that two, two schools in their area had already announced they were closing for good and that students that did go to those schools would be consolidated into other school locations. Two Schools, I think both of them were elementary, one was an elementary and one was a junior high. Both of them were closing permanently due to lack of enrollment. This is a month ago. Closing permanently. I mean, this is not going to go away. COVID will go away eventually because all viruses burn themselves out in time. Whether I'm right on the timing or whether the timing's longer than I say it is, this will burn itself out. They, like, you have to be completely ignorant to biology, epidemiology, and history to believe that it won't. You, you really do. You have to be completely ignorant to all three of those things. Because if you have a cursory understanding of any one of them, you know that well, it's going to be here forever does not make sense. It does not make sense. But nothing about it makes any sense at all. It, it, is, it is a completely intellectually dishonest argument. But this thing that's happening to our school systems will not go away. And I wanted to let you know that today I released uh, my latest article in my series on the coming crash. This is megatrend number three, and it's called The Coming Economic Tra Crash Part 3, Post-Secondary Education. And I want to just give you a few highlights about it. Um, what I say in it is there are four subtrends. So within this megatrend of a decline in secondary, which is collegiate education, secondary is actually everything after um, everything after high school is considered secondary education. Trade schools, you name it, right? But what I'm talking about is, is college, and that's generally what people are talking about when they say secondary education. Undergraduate enrollment in U.S. colleges has declined every year since 2010 consecutively with no change. 
It went down from 2010 to 2011 to 12 to 13 to 14 to 15 to 16 to 17 to 18 to 19. It will definitely go down this year. By the time it's done with this year, it's 10 years. In my article, I kind of give the benefit of the doubt because the statistics were not from the complete year prior, and so I just said eight consecutive years. And what I say in the article, and I really, this is a long article, but I really recommend that you read it and share it, is that if you asked any investor at all to invest in an industry or a company where the entire sector or the company itself has had declining revenues and declining size, for eight years, they would give you a simple one-word answer to your request. No. No investor would invest in, a, in an industry that has declined for eight years. And another thing I wanted to drive home during that is, please understand, that eight, ten-year cycle of declining enrollments was during one of the best economies we've ever had. As much as we people like to kick Obama, from 2011 onward, our economy's been good, right up until COVID in 2020, right? And and you can hate Trump, but it went on jet fuel when Trump took over. It the, the Trump economy, and I'm not a fan of the man, okay? But the Trump economy was the best economy the United States has had in modern times, infinity. And that's not like, hey, we should keep doing it. I'm just saying it was. And while the economy was on freaking jet fuel fire, this industry, and that's what secondary education is an industry, went downhill. Now, this is how that ties into the K-12 revolution of going to homeschool. And this is a connection I don't think anybody's made yet. As you get millions more students who are comfortable with self-directed education, i.e. homeschool, and comfortable with distance learning, online education, fill in the blank however you want to describe this. The number of students willing to shoulder debt to go to university in the classic sense where you go live in a dorm for at least the first year, maybe the first two years, and you go hang out at the quad, and you pay for all this extra fluff and stuff that you don't need, is going to go down further than it already was. Because what feeds the college system is the high school system. You know, they, they do a really good job of brainwashing your kids into obedience from K through 8. But it's in 9 through 12 that they turn up the pressure on you gotta go to college, you gotta go to college, you gotta go to college, you gotta go to college. Permanent record, you gotta go to college, permanent record, you gotta go to college. Extracurricular activities, gotta go to college. Gotta go to college, gotta go to college, gotta go to college, gotta go. Every child should go to college. Bring in people to talk about going to college. You bring in the other people to talk about the, I wish I would have went to college and here's what I would have done differently. And then you bring the other person, I'm a hero because I went to college. And you bring in the college professor and this is what college will be like. And go to college, go to college, go to college, go to college. Four years of that. And, hey, you can get student loans. So we're going to bring somebody in and talk to you today about getting student loans, student loans, student loans, student loans, student loans. That's only worth it. You're going to make more money. He's going to get money back. It's like an auction. Who's going to college? Johnny's going to college. Susie's going to college. Billy's going to college. I mean, that's four years of that shit. That is when you think about something like real estate seminars. So they run a seminar for free or for 25 bucks or whatever, and they run a bunch of advertisements. And you're going to learn how to flip properties and make money in any market up or down and how to buy houses with no financing and no money and blah, 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 right? So you go in for your, like, hour-long thing with your shitty lunch or whatever that they give you, and they rah, rah, rah you. 
But the only purpose of that seminar is to sell you the $5,000 package to become super rich, which is going to teach you how to buy houses with no money, right? Okay, high school has become a four-year version of that preliminary seminar to sell college to kids. So take a significant portion, 30% of kids out of that system, and what happens to your already declining college enrollments? You pour gas on the fire. You pour gas on the fire. Because what happens to the, the kid that, that's doing self-directed learning with home education who finds out about a praxis, right, with a boot camp? Or finds out about Android developer programs, and they've already been taking coding courses. They already know half of what is in the Udacity product, and so they take the Udacity thing, and they can get a job with Google when they're freaking 18 or 19 years old. Does that kid go to college? Do they really? And it, it is not the odds of a well-educated young person making a logical choice on what to do, choosing college lower if they're a homeschooler than they're in the state's system of programming. It's not about the capability. It's not about the ability. It's not about even the suitability. Who's more likely to, in their evaluation of the university system, you know, have dad teach them how Excel works and look at a career field and evaluate the cost of a degree relative to the earnings in that field? The kid that goes to you know, Joe Blow High School or the kid that does self-directed at-home learning? If I have to give you an answer that you are a person who exemplifies that the state-based education system does exactly what it's supposed to do. It programs you. So you have the economic fallout of the homeschool revolution. You have the economic fallout of the decline of the university system. And I lay out these four trends. And I'll just give you the four trends. Uh, trend one, the value of a degree is in terminal decline. Trend two, college enrollments are in a terminal decline. Trend three is nano degrees, boot camps, vocational internships, etc. And trend four is the universities themselves are moving to online education as they see the writing on the wall. And if you read the article I put out, this will all become something you can't even be... Like, I've written this in such a way that it cannot be argued against. No case can be made against it. And it ends with the final part of the article, the cascade effect, as the dominoes fall. But all of the megatrends, the... Real estate, see, both of these will aggravate the first trend, which is real estate. Do not, do not overlook this in making decisions about where to move to and what you're going to do with your life. And I implore you, I implore you, if every time we talk about homeschool, if you are a person with children of school age and you come up with a hundred reasons that you would like to, but you can't, I implore you to not do that here. I'm not saying you need to homeschool your kids. This is what I'm asking you to do for your own benefit and for theirs. I want you to next, for the next, for the weekend, just for the weekend, I want you to say, how can I make homeschooling work? That's all I want you to do. I'm not telling you you're going to get an answer that will work for you. But if you are actively seeking reasons that you can't do something, you will find them. If you are actively seeking reasons for how you can do something, you will find those. And if you are prejudicing your mind with this is not doable, then the solutions that might be right in front of you that are highly doable will never show themselves. 
There's the old. Remember the old saying that the person that says something that cannot something cannot be done should not get in the way of the person doing it. That's a really great point. But we do it to ourselves all the time with the mental programming that we do to ourselves. It's bad enough that the state and the technocracy and the oligarchies are constantly programming your brain with the media and with the education system and every other way that they can with all types of marketing. They're constantly programming your brain. Don't help them. Don't help them. In the end, your brain is a powerful computer, a self-learning computer, and you are the lead programmer. You're the chief programmer. All the other lines of code that comes in from all those other sources, all the shitty code, you decide whether you, as the lead programmer, allow it to be put into the system or not. You're the one responsible to debug it or to shit-can it. And when you say, I would like to, but I can't, You are taking and you are, at that point, you are, maybe it's because of previous shitty code you let in from the outside systems, but you at that point are actively programming your brain to not find a solution that you claim to want. So I'm not saying you're wrong if you don't end up figuring out how to. I think you're wrong right now if you don't attempt to figure out if you can in a very genuine way. And I think that what's about to happen to our school systems, not everywhere, some schools will be relatively okay, but in many instances what's about to happen to our schools will be so bad that as they get older and realize, I didn't have to be here, I could have done this at home, your children may not forgive you. If you send your children to a school where they're going to constantly have their temperature taken, be kept away from each other, not allowed to touch each other, and have to sit in a plexiglass cube Wear a mask for nine hours a day when it's 100 degrees out, etc. They may not forgive you if there was a way otherwise. Because I'm telling you now, I'm not saying all the good students and all the good parents will be the ones to do this. I'm telling you the majority of the ones who move out of the system first will be the ones with the most financial means, the most supporting parents, and the most intelligent young people. They will be the majority of the first movers which means what's going to get left behind isn't. And you could be mad at me and every child is a gift and blah, 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 blah. There are parents who are shitty parents. There are st students who do not want to be there, who are willfully defined, have no interest in learning, who are nothing but a disruption. And they're already a problem when they're in the minority. Wait till they're the majority. Do, do, you, if you can, get on the other side of this. And no matter whether you have kids or not, this affects you. This is going to be one of the largest economic turmoils that any living person's ever seen because it is so big. It is an $800 billion industry. Well over half a trillion dollar industry going through the biggest disruption that has ever happened to it in history. And some pieces of it being largely killed. If you think that that can happen and it won't affect you, I'm sorry, but you're wrong. Now, better things to finish up with. How about fall gardening? I don't want to talk a lot about that today. I don't want to go too long. But I just want to kind of put a bug in your ear that it's time. And it's not necessarily time to do anything, but it's time to get ready to do some things. So what you really have to do with fall gardening is you have to say, well, when's my first frost date average it's kind of the backwards thing from the spring and what 
does a plant that I want a fall garden with air quotes around it. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is gonna be a plant that I primarily grow during the fall season. What stage does that plant need to be in by that date? Because some of you that are way north, your fall gardening is about, hey, I need to get some row covers and cover my long duration plants so they last a little longer. All right. A lot of us in the south, like, we can't go plant new plants outside right now without them being obliterated by that great big giant angry sun that's up in the sky right now. I mean, it is scorched earth, even with some shade and even with great mulch and even with great soil. Like, it is just a very hard time to go put a little baby seed in the ground right now. But we might want to grow, let's say, this is falls when we want to grow our broccoli. Now, what I need is, by the time I get my first freeze, which is around a week before Thanksgiving on average, sometimes a week after. That's, that's my range. I want a broccoli plant that's starting to put heads on by that time. So I need to count back from there and say that's about eight weeks. So I got to come eight weeks back from there. And then that's, that's when that plant gets set out. So then I'm going to say, well, I want to set that plant out at about 21 days, 20 days. So I can come back from there. And all of a sudden I realize like that's right around the corner. If it's something that actually has to come to full harvest because the frost is going to kill it, you need to be really soon getting getting it going. And you need to be thinking about what do I want to grow. And one way to do that is to think beyond what will grow. But what will grow well for you in the fall and into your early winter that won't grow well for you in your summer? Many of you in the South have really interesting answers to that. And many of you in the North, you, you have more of a, well... Everything grows for me in the summer. But so then you have to start thinking about your things like your spinaches and your kales, your other, your other brassias, uh, things like that that'll, that'll grow into your, your fall. And are these things that need to be started indoors or in the shade, in like some little respite area that you have where you can do this outdoors, either or, now? And then you also need to be thinking about what are the things that, yes, I can plant them in the ground. I can direct sow this thing. When? Because I'm going to tell you that the interesting thing about this time of year is it's really busy and it's really convoluted. And then with all the COVID crap thrown in it and everything else that you're trying to do, and if, especially if you're homeschooling now and all that other stuff, it's really easy for that time to come and go. And if you miss that window, of, it's really going to be like a week or two for a lot of you that that seed needs to go in the ground or that seed needs to go in a pot and get started. It throws everything off and you miss the opportunity to do this. So I, I just kind of wanted to prime the pump. And we'll probably do a good fall gardening episode soon. I'll give you some different crops so you can think about growing and stuff like that, depending on where you are. But I just wanted to, like, kick you in that direction. That lines up with our item of the day today. Remember, you can always support the show just by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Today I've got the four-shelf indoor mini greenhouse. If you've looked at that recently at tspaz and said, $89, what the hell happened? I don't know, man. This is one of those products like 18 companies sell this exact same product. It's exactly the same. I'm sure it's made in the same chop shop. Uh, it should sell for somewhere between like 30 bucks and 40 bucks. Right now, the lowest selling price that I can find on it is about 29 bucks. 
and it is a damn good little system for 29 bucks. I built my indoor hydroponics crap key based seed starting system with it this year. I have had incredible results. But even if you just want to start, you know, grow, you know, take some flats and water from the bottom and throw some six packs in it or whatever, it's perfect. It is for indoor growing. It's the perfect size. It's big enough you can start. You can start 150 plants in it, easy. And it's small enough that you can put it in some extra bedroom or something like that. And honestly, I don't think I'll ever take mine apart, but it comes apart and goes together so easy. If you did want to like put it away for the year, you could. The greenhouse covering for it, you might think, that's summer, I don't need that. You know, depends on what temperature you keep your house. I mean, the thing is, this thing worked great for me in the winter, and it'll work great for me in the summer, because pretty much I keep my house the same indoors all the time. So check it out again. It's the four-shelf indoor mini greenhouse, TSP item of the day. You can find it at T-SPAS. It will be... In our uh, our daily mail, so if you're not on the daily mail, get on the daily mail. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on subscribe. I want you to know something else. Um, Unloose the Goose is taking off like gooses in flight, man. It, the gaggle is gaggling. And we've got some stuff going on. We now have a Facebook group. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with this, Unloose the Goose is like a podcasting supergroup. I put together... Six of the greatest podcasters I know and decided I would join them too. We do one podcast a week. We do it on, on uh, Zoom, so we have a video of it, and it's on like iTunes, Stitcher, all that as an audio. Um, it has gone really well. We have a Facebook group, and we now have a Telegram group. And if you can't find the Telegram group on like Facebook or something like that, and you want to be part of our Telegram group, send me an email, Goose in the subject line, and ask me for it, and I'll just send you a link to it. So you can, uh, I might have really made my weekend busy, uh, but I will try to uh, answer all of you on that one way or another. But we have a Telegram group now. I didn't set it up, so I don't know if it can be found easily on Telegram if you don't know where it is or whatever, but I'll, I'll give you a link. And uh, what we're hoping with Unloose the Goose is it creates communities and communities of communities and communities of communities and communities. And the reason we use Telegram is that if you're using, like, Facebook groups and Facebook Messenger, all you're basically being monitored. And I'm not one of these tinfoil hat people that worry about everything. I mean, I think my CIA agent is very disappointed. You know, he got assigned Jack Spierko, and all he sees through my phone is me taking a dump reading in the morning, and everything else I do is public, right? Like, he just sees my face, and I'm looking at the phone. You could tell. I mean, my CIA agent has to be bored to tears. Uh, and then I never take my phone anywhere, and I go anywhere or whatever. But, but in truth... Everything you say and do online, uh, unless it's encrypted, is collected, especially if it's on Facebook. So with Telegram, everything's end-to-end encrypted automatically. You don't have to do anything. It just is. And so what we're hoping is that our Telegram group, we don't want it to be like some giant, huge thing that everything happens on. We want people to like start talking on it, and then like three people will realize, like, oh, we all want to do this thing. Go make your own. Take your encrypted discussion to your own little subgroup, and you start building your own little cell. Your own little flock of geese. Your own little flock of geese that say, leave us alone and make your own little disruption, because that's what geese do. right? So check out UnloosetheGoose.com. And with that, let's go ahead and wrap things up with a song of the day that's designed just to you know, be a nice song on a Friday. Um, there actually is some political connotations to this song, um, but don't worry about them today. If you want to know, look it up on Song Facts, and you can learn more about that. I'm going to give you the name of the song. And then you are going to think you know the song. And then you're going to realize it's not the song you think it is. 
And then when you realize the song that it is, you're going to realize that you do know this song. The song is called What a Wonderful World. No, not Louis Armstrong. Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke. And I'll just let this song be what it is. And I guarantee you, unless you've lived under a rock your entire life, as soon as you hear the opening of this song, you'll be like, oh, that, what a wonderful world. It is a wonderful world. With that's been Jack Spierko now wishing you a great weekend with another edition of the Survival Podcast.